We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Ben. And tonight we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, from, from this point forward until April of 2020 is the 10th year that we've been doing this podcast. And so over the course of the year... We're going to do a few special episodes just as sort of to mark the occasion. And one of the things that I've done is I've asked Ben, and I've asked Simon, and, and I've even asked myself, which is a weird conversation where I sat down and I asked myself questions and then I answered them because I'm not going insane at all. Uh, what are your five favorite science fiction films of all time? Because I want to talk about some good films uh, this year. And uh, tonight is the first of those films that we're talking about. We are going to be talking about the 1968 Planet of the Apes, a spacecraft. Oh, by the way, I just want to say, in case you haven't seen Planet of the Apes, stop the podcast, go watch Planet of the Apes, and come back. Uh, should go without saying on every episode of Fusion Patrol, but in this in particular, there are spoilers for one of the greatest movie endings of all time. So, just saying. All right. A spacecraft from Earth plows through space at near light speed. Alone in the cockpit, George Taylor muses about the world he's left behind forever and the future of mankind. At their current speed, centuries have passed on Earth in what has only been six months to them. Everything he knows is gone to dust. But does man still make war against his brother? Keep his neighbor's children starving? He joins the remainder of his crew in suspended animation. They awaken when the ship crashes in a lake on a desolate world. Only three of the crew have survived, and they escape the sinking craft to reach the shore. It isn't promising. It seems a desolate, uncompromising world, and they have but three days of rations. After a long trek, they encounter lush fields and primitive, mute humans. When they are attacked by gun-wielding, horse-riding gorillas, Taylor is separated from the others, shot in the throat and captured. Unable to speak, he tries to convey his intelligence to Dr. Zira, a chimpanzee scientist on animal behavior. Trapped in a world upside down, Taylor makes friends with Zira and her fiancé Cornelius, and also begins to learn that the Minister of Science, an orangutan named Dr. Zayas, has a particular interest in him. When he attempts to escape to avoid castration, Taylor manages to regain his voice and shocks the apes with his ability to speak. Brought before a tribunal of the ruling orangutans, Taylor is unable to convince them that he is from outer space. The fate of the other astronauts is made known to him, one had been killed in the raid. The other was lobotomized and is now a vegetable. With no corroboration, Taylor has no hope. And the orangutans make a show of demonstrating that Taylor isn't really a reasoning, intelligent creature. Zira and Cornelius try to make a case that Taylor is a missing link between apes and humans who must have evolved from their primitive ancestors. This is scientific heresy, and they are indicted on charges. Zayas talks privately with Taylor. In private, it's clear Zayas understands Taylor's intelligence and real is real and knows something more. 
but he believes Taylor to be from a tribe of advanced humans somewhere on the other side of the Forbidden Zone. If Taylor will just confess and give over the info on his tribe, they won't cut off his nuts and lobotomize him. That night, now fugitives from the law, Zira and Cornelius spring Taylor from his cage and they escape to the Forbidden Zone. There, Cornelius, an archaeologist, had previously found the remains of an ancient civilization. When they arrive at the dig, Zaius and his guerrilla soldiers aren't far behind. Taking Zaius hostage, Taylor forces him to give Cornelius the opportunity to present his evidence. What Cornelius has found is all too familiar to Taylor. Eyeglasses, dentures, and an artificial heart valve. Zaius dismisses Taylor's explanations, but he cannot dismiss the talking human doll. Trust up, Zaius reveals to Taylor that he knew man came first and that he was an evil, destructive creature who destroyed himself and turned a paradise into the Forbidden Zone. Taylor leaves and heads further into the Forbidden Zone. A free man now, searching for answers. He finds them when he comes across the ancient ruins of the Statue of Liberty. The planet of apes is Earth. Taylor has been home all along. The planet of the apes. Um, and I'm gonna put the, I, I picked this one um, out there. It's, it's one of my favorites. And I tried to watch this film anew because, as, as listeners probably know, Planet of the Apes was followed up by several sequel movies, a reboot, then several more reboots. Um, and I wanted to take this film and just say, this, this, just this one. Not thinking about what happens in Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Escape from the Planet of the Apes or anything. So that, that's the, the mindset that, that I had looking at this film. And it better than I thought it was, uh, is, is the conclusion that I came to. I think it's been ruined by some of the sequels. That even though I enjoyed them, I think the, the purity of this story has kind of been diluted with some of the other things that they added um, later on. But anyway... Uh, I'm gushing because I love this film. Ben, what what do you what do you think about Planet of the Apes? Well, I agree with you in terms of what the sequels may have done to the overall franchise, and I do like the sequels a great deal. They're fun uh, films. Well, yeah, purely from a popcorn entertainment point of view, I think they're quite good. This one sort of stands alone, uh, but for for very unusual reasons. Um, I, I was really imp- uh, amazed by something as I was reading it, uh, doing a little bit of reading on it and watching it this time. Because, you know, like you, I wanted to see this with fresh eyes, although, you know, physically, you know, it, in reality, that's impossible. But I tried right. to do my best to divorce myself of any previous experience in watching it. And in doing so, came away with a couple of things. Uh, first off, as just uh, enjoyment, you know, mm-hmm. a movie to sit down and enjoy. It's, it's great. It's absolutely fantastic. If we're going to examine this as a hard sci-fi, it falls apart left and right for me. As hard sci-fi, I would agree. It it just disintegrates. But what sells this thing more than any other is the subtext. It is amazing in this movie. Do you you know what I I thought of when I... um... This time when I was watching it, um, and, and you're right, it's not hard sci-fi. I mean, we could pick apart the whole evolution or how apes or, you know, what not. What I don't think I ever saw before was that this is of a genre of science fiction that is Star Trek. 
this is this is star trek science fiction this is we go to a place show you another culture which reflects upon your own so you can ask the questions and it it, it's exactly right it's masterful at it it's exactly right at, at, and what 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 I think what's also really interesting, you know, might as well just just get to to, to the meat of it. Um, one of the the biggest points that this movie is making is its approach um, with with a, with a government that is a theocracy mm-hmm. of the worst type. I mean, it's just, it's egregious in how. Um, just how close-minded it is. Although we do get the reveal, as you covered in the synopsis, there is a reason. Zaius, I suspect, is sort of guiding it. He wants to keep it that way because he knows. He knows what man did. Man right. was evil. Man was awful. Man did this. So he's trying to protect ape. He's trying to protect all of ape kind by guiding them down this extremely narrow, very, very rigid, theocratic point of view, even though he's... He's not the big guy. If he, you know, right. he's not 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 the the, the leader um, of the of the the council. I suppose is what you call them. Yeah, I forgot what what the name was of the of uh, James Whitmer's character. But uh... right. But what's fascinating is the trial, and that, I, in, in my opinion, that's really the heart of this entire movie is the trial that that ad hoc trial that Taylor is put on. Mm-hmm. And there is a moment there that just is a when you know when I saw it as a kid, I just kind of went ah, 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 ah. watching it just the other day. I thought, wow, this is just revolting, but in a good way, you know. I mean, I'm revolting as an idea. Mm-hmm. And that's when the, you know they they're asking uh, one one of the orangutans is asking Taylor to quote one of their articles of faith, which proves that he isn't a reasoning being because he doesn't know yeah scripture yeah he's asking him to quote scripture and as i was doing reading on this uh, i found that this was one of the rewrites that um i think the most uh, yeah the the last person to do the rewrites for this movie this was his part if i read the trivia on this, this michael wilson's part yes yeah yes because this poor soul michael wilson was subject to mccarthyism Yep, yep. And boy was he bitter. Rightly so, to be honest. Rightly so. Well, and and you know, let's let's not downplay it. I, I realize there's substantial differences, but the basic through line is exactly right. This is a Rod Serling strip uh, mm-hmm. script too. Um, yeah. Most of the rewrites involve changing setting, and but I think the beats and the the general theme are, uh, you know, uh, this is a Serling Twilight Zone basically. Pretty much, uh, yeah. Idea. Uh, yeah, yeah. The the writers were were making were making some points, and it wasn't. It's not just the theocracy. I mean, we we one of the things is that uh, I I loved it and more watching this film and things. All right, let me wind that back. One of the things that I erased from my mind, and maybe you'll maybe you'll remember this from the other films. Ape shall not kill. Not ape. kill ape. Not yeah. in this film. No, it's not. There is there is no indication that apes don't kill one another here. We we don't we don't know that. That that is not in any way, shape, or form established in this film. We see apes who are prejudiced against different ape species, or we see evidence of it. 
with with the talk about the 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 quota systems and you know chimpanzees getting ahead uh you know th- there is clearly problems in this society oh yeah it's not perfect society. and and this is one of the things that uh, there's the line that Taylor says, well, you know, clearly some apes are more equal than equal others. Equal others, right. Which is, you know, right out of, you know, well, even now in human culture. And I think that it's a, I was trying to break up ways that this is, this is an indictment to mankind. If, if it wasn't clear from what we're saying, this is an indictment to mankind. The whole film is yeah. cracking on it. But it's interesting because we see it in multiple ways. We see mankind through the eyes of Taylor because Taylor tells us what he thinks about mankind at, at the beginning of the film. Does he still make war with his brother? Does he still starve children? It, you know, and then he's telling Landon in the desert. It's like, no, I am a, I am a seeker. I I'm seeking something better than better humans. Than right. He's a cynic. And, and of course, uh, there is... I, I can't remember who the quote is from, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of that a cynic is an idealist who has been seeing the light, or something to that effect. Because wow. you couldn't be that cynical if you didn't come from a position of having a strong sense of idealism. Right. right. You have to be thinking man should be equal, and we should feed children, and we should do all these things. And it's from that... That then you look at mankind and see what they're not doing that that makes you into a cynic. So correct. Even though Landon is like the boy hero, although we don't have see much of his character in the NASA hero, really Taylor is probably the most idealistic of the bunch. It's just that in a very negative sort of way, <laughs> right? In a, in a very negative sort of way. And um, but we see man through the eyes of Landon. We see man through. The eyes of the apes, how they see us and how Zeus understands us to be. We see mankind through us watching mankind be aped in the apes, their behavior yes. and their pattern. And then we also see mankind from the history, you know, from the from the third person universal perspective. Mankind really is pretty awful because he blew up his planet. It, it it really is layered on there as to how hard they're piling on top of mankind in well, this you, film. We're, we're, it's an examination of mankind all done in a hall of mirrors. I mean, so that it, you know, there's, there's like no illusion left. Yeah. And uh, I, I really I like that. Loved it. I like I, that a lot. And it could be just because I'm a cynic, but you know, well, you and me both. I mean, I like to think of myself as an idealist, but I'm also pretty about it. Um, but that's the thing that I loved about this movie is that it is just got these layers of messages, uh, you know, that and you know, interesting that you make the Star Trek parallel, you know, morals and messages, etc. It, it's just filled with these kinds of these nuggets that. If you're if you've got an open enough mind to take it in, I mean, there's some really good juicy stuff to chew on. You know, whether you're examining um, how the apes are treating Taylor or how the apes are treating themselves. You know, a poor Cor- uh, Cornelius and Zira. I mean, they're getting shafted pretty badly. Yes. By the time this is all over. Yes. Well, you know, that's what you get when you have the uh, defender of the faith and the minister of science in one job. 
Ow. You know, yeah, stand, yeah, exactly, standing opposite, you know, because uh, Zira's got, you know, we're, we're, we're seeking the truth. I uh-huh. mean, she's almost like echoing that scientific mantra that all scientists, you know, virtuous scientists are going for. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving out the, you know, the Mary Shelley kind of thing. Um, but you know, we've, we've, and you and I have talked about this, you know, how scientists, you know, they're, they're looking for, you know, knowledge, truth, etc. That's what, that's all they want to do. They want to learn and, and to, to, to be hitting this brick wall, you know, and, and that's a reflection of things that, you know, humanity has had to face. So, you know, I remember at one point watching this and I'm thinking, oh my God, Cornelius and Zira, they are the equivalent of Galileo. They're, they you are know, at, at the at the cusp of the Renaissance, hopefully, um, but they're you know they're banging up against the Catholic Church of the Dark Ages. You, you, you've you've brought up an interesting point. They may be the best portrayed scientists that we've seen uh, in in the stuff we've watched because um, typically scientists come off as being arrogant and you know they don't know what they've wrought. Well, these two scientists are about to bring massive upheaval if they carry on with what they're developing but they're right they are right and it's not their Ish. desire to uh, well you know the, the, again you know the argument could be made you know was was frankenstein's desire to create upheaval when he created his monster you know that's that's a very subjective point of view i'm sure he felt that he wasn't being that way just as cornelius and zira don't feel that they're being that way, but you know, from uh, an outsider's point of view, looking uh, looking at what they're doing, it's it's like everything they're doing is purely for empirical research, just the study and and the knowledge of truth and and what is out there, and it, it's it, it's it's kind of hard to turn a nose up at that. I mean, you know, as a, me as a viewer, I mean, I can see why Zeus is doing it. Uh, and I, in, in a sick sort of way, I sympathize because it seems like he's coming from the same angle when he's trying to squash them, just as he's trying to squash Taylor. He knows he somehow knows. he's managed to figure it out. I mean, he says it right at the very end. And his last line, when Zira asks him, what is he going to find out there, Doctor? His destiny. Destiny. Huh? Somehow, Zayas has figured it out that humanity destroyed themselves. So they just annihilated themselves and he doesn't want to see obviously he he wants humanity to stay away because they're the poison pill and he doesn't want apes to go down that same path yeah so let me ask this question Zaius we know from the end of the film that Zaius knows that that mankind that you know the whole show trial is that Taylor isn't really an intelligent creature but get him alone and Zaius is perfectly fine having a conversation calls him by his proper name he understands taylor is a real person the mm-hmm. the threat of castrating him and lobotomizing him is you know it it's it's not a protective measure to prevent him from uh breeding i mean it is or you know having children that can speak or carrying out crazy ideas that's a side effect it's a threat it's meant to make Taylor capitulate, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's an intellectual threat more than physical torture would be, or you know, I'm sorry, we just, this is what we have to do, <clears throat> um, kind of thing. So Zayas is, is he's got it. He's got the picture. What about the yeah. other people on the tribunal? Are they just zealots that are not in on wow. the picture, or are they are they also in on the clue? Uh, that's a great question um 
do you have? I mean, no, I don't have an answer. If that's the, I don't have an answer. I I think my feeling is that they are not. That that they are zealots. That's my thought too. That's my feeling based on the way they behave. Because it's one of the other orangutans, you know, that that approaches um, Taylor. And you know, you know, quote a particle of faith. You know, like oh, I don't know that. Oh, yeah, you're you're not intelligent. Um, it that came off as so. Uh, oh God, what's the word I'm looking for? Terrified? Um, no, <laughs> desperate? No, no, not desperate. I mean, it, it's 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 a negative religious term, and, I, and mm. it's it's left me. Um, I, I see. The, the, oh, go ahead. The, there was just there was just something so narrow in that thought. More narrow than even Zaius is. Because Zaius comes off as just cranky and angry. You know, I, I see that there are kinds of, uh, two kinds of, it's probably more than two kinds. It's a false dichotomy, but two major kinds of, let's say, religious deniers, right? Those that are opposed to an idea. Because that's typically what we have here when, when religion has got its hackles up. It's a, about an idea or a concept. And there's those that don't understand it, don't want to understand it, but know it's a threat. And so hackles up, push hard. And then there are those who understand it's the threat, understand the reality of it, but realize that it undermines their power base. Mm-hmm. And I see Zaius in that latter category. I do too. Yeah. But I see those other guys in the, in the first, you know, the, the, Southern Alabama and the mountains. The ignorant. Kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of, you know, not stupid. I don't want to make it convey it that way because obviously they have to have at least enough sophistry to uh, to, to put on the show trial and, and do the things that they no, do. No, they're, there, they're but... not stupid. They are ignorant. Yeah. Um, Very close-minded. Yeah, now I understand the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil bit oh, that was improvised cute. by the director there at the end is not part of the story, but it's, it is one of the famous, famous scenes in the film. Um, what, what a, I guess I should, again, step back for a second and say that the makeup for this, particularly for 1968... Pretty good. ...is, well, it won, it won an Oscar for it. It's, yeah. it's, it's an amazing bit. And it, you can see the actors act through those costumes. Yes, and, you, you, and a lot of it is just all through the eyes. I mean, you know, they, they really allow for the eyes to do their thing. So, uh, it, it, you know, hats off, uh, especially Kim Hunter, I thought, yeah. did just the most amazing acting with her eyes. I mean, she was able to convey, I mean, you can convey some smile and some frown, but all of her expression is done in her eyes. It is just amazing. It, it is, and I. It helps. It helps so much when you're watching this film and you're seeing human emotion, human reactions, human foibles and prejudices, uh, and and all the things that humans do. You see it reflected in those actors, mm-hmm. even though they're behind that ape makeup. That makes this all the more effect. I mean, obviously, if they were just people who were painted blue, then it would be easy to see that. But in this, in the makeup, you see it, and it. It reminds me of, a, of a, a a story that, I don't know, it came to my mind while I was watching it because I was looking at the faces of the actors who were doing the apes and I thought, wow, they, they look they look so much like us. It's, it's the mind that came to my thought. So here's the, here's the brief detour story. Um, my family, uh, particularly my back to my grandparents' generation, were quite 
a Southern Baptist um, literalists, biblical literalists. And um, my dad is the one that, that was raised that way and then went to college and studied science and, and broke that chain. But we, uh, I didn't really realize that as a kid because I just, I was a kid. I just was kind of always on the, the science-y side of it. And we were at his uncle's, aunt and uncle's house one night sometime in the 70s. So I would have been in my 10s, early teens, perhaps. And, you know, we'd had dinner or just chatting or I don't remember what it was, but TV was on. And there was some, you know, Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom or whatever it was. And it was on chimpanzees. And the, the chimpanzees were doing chimpanzee things and grooming each other and yakking. And my great aunt looked at this and she said, she said, it's just amazing how much they look like us. Those words came back to me as I was watching this. It's amazing wow. how much they, they look like. And I, and I, in my youthful, <laughs> youthful innocence, said, well, I mean, obviously, because humans and chimpanzees evolved from a common ancestor, so there's bound to be a lot of... I had no idea what wow, I Wow, you're a heretic. Put, what I just put my... The, the, if you've ever seen a, an elderly southern woman go well i never for real <laughs> that, uh-huh. that was the the look and the absolute embarrassed my dad had this weird smile on his face that he was just suppressing like man and they were just they were just shocked but i i i think it's germane because i think apes doing this I mean, yes, obviously, they were talking a little bit about evolution in this story as well, which is one of the hard sci-fi concepts that ain't going to pass muster. But <laughs> the way they've got it set up in this story. But nonetheless, it, it I think it does, you know, it, it does fit. They, they do act and look like us. And so it works. It, it, even though these are humans. And, and actually, it would have worked if they could have got real uh, chimpanzees to do the acting. But apparently, they don't have a... Screen Actors Guild or something, or the Chimps Actors Guild. So, anyway, um, let's see. A gorilla's a gorilla's actors guild gag. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Would they have different guilds, or would they be the Ape Actors Guild, or or would they segregate themselves naturally to uh, to do that? Simian Actors Guild SAG. There we go. Oh yeah, then they could do a thing. Yeah, I, I there there is a line early in the film um, where Landon says. You know, uh, and and I had to explain this to my son. Actually, he was watching it with me. Um, we we have this sequence where Taylor is just ripping into Landon about yeah. coming out here, and you know they got a statue for you, and 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 my son's like raised his hand and and had me pause it, and he's like, is he is he insulting him? And I go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he he's was. he's mocking him. He's mocking his his attitudes and uh, motivations for going on this mission. And then, you know, and then we get Taylor's own motivations in his own words. And Dodge, who is the most underdeveloped character in this film, is like, eh, did she, you know, anything to get in a volcano. is like, he gets some new data. But um, after we have those two scenes, James is like, why would anybody go on a mission like this? Why would anybody send somebody on a mission like this, right? I mean, what would you go and you lose everything? NASA sends you into space, and they basically lose everything too. That is true. I mean, it's 
it's it's a real gamble because one of the first things that the that our intrepid crew is going to try to do is signal Earth to let them know that they've landed where they believe to be somewhere in the constellation of Orion mm-hmm. um, without any. I mean, they're just assuming humanity survived, you know, and which is an interesting thing, especially given the way Taylor. I mean, he, he's already sort of on that path. Uh, that that cynical path of you know humanity has the means to just completely wipe themselves out. When he talks about you know does man do this? You know does man still do this other thing? So he's already he's he's part way there in understanding that there's a chance that humanity may not have survived you know this uh, our trip into the stars and into the future. So in 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 many different aspects, you have to start kind of asking the question: um, What was the purpose? Do you think there's uh, a why chance? What, do you think there's a chance that Taylor also is hopeful that maybe man is better? I mean, is he is he thinking perhaps the Star Trek future is true? Perhaps we are getting better. Well, perhaps. I'm. The, I think there's a part of him that hopes. I, I do think that that it's there. That out of because otherwise, why would he be asking those questions when he's giving that last log? Yeah, if, if he didn't have that hope. I don't think he would have asked him in the, uh, you know, posed those questions in the first place. I mean, from from his standpoint, yes, he wanted to run away from the humanity and the Earth that he knew, and try to find something that was better than the humanity that he knew. But I'm sure that he was also hoping that you know maybe we finally out, you know outgrew our adolescence and became decent people. It's probably mired under a lot of cynicism, but I think that little spark of hope was there. <laughs> was yeah i i yeah i can't i believe in science for the sake of science and i believe in exploration for the sake of exploration but at the same time i heard a i heard a a speaker once that made a, a really fascinating point you think about governments not doing the things that governments ought to do fix dams um you know fix floodplains fix roads um build seawalls, all of these things. And and all of these things are done based on a plan that they have. How many years is it likely to be before we have a flood big enough to cause this to be a problem? Mm-hmm. And if it's a 100-year flood, they're not going to do anything about it. This is, this is not just because they're callous, but it's because, you know, A, it's not going to happen in their term. In their lifetime or whatever, yeah. If they solve the problem, they're not going to get any credit for it. And if they spend the money on it, their constituents will rip them apart and kick them out because they're wasting money on something that they don't see any practical return on. So it's not just the politician's fault, right? It's it's also, you know, it's everybody doesn't have a good sense of the future. Given that this space mission, at the very least, when we see it open up six months in, they're already 700 years into the future. Mm-hmm. What kind of return did NASA get on this experiment? Yeah, that's what, what, what I would keep they, wondering. What would they do? What were they hoping for yeah. in the next phase? Is it you know? Well, the ship went up and it didn't uh, blow up while we could still see it. So I guess this works. Let's make another one. Yeah. Are, are mean, they? What, what is? I would I would think that okay. Um, they're maybe they're seeing the first practical, but you know, it, okay. Let's assume humanity didn't blow itself up. Let's assume humanity survived for a second. And uh, Taylor was able to send you know, something back 
uh, you know, we're talking human, humans way off into the future. You know, they're probably taking a look at this and laughing, thinking, we already knew that. Now, okay, so now here, let's, let's, let, let's try to make some excuse for it. Taylor is 2,000 years in the future, okay? And he is 300 years communication away from Earth. So he's 2,300 years away from Earth. If he sends a signal back, hey, we found a planet, is that good enough? Because 2,300 years in the future, I mean, we don't know how many planets there are out there. Even if they had much faster space travel, which, you know, let's, let's try to pretend like we're in hard science fiction land. Faster than light travel is not possible. So, you know, maybe... Maybe trying well, to plan 2,000 years in the future to find another planet that you could send a bunch of people to might not be completely nuts, but I just can't picture anybody funding it. No, no, but I could also see uh, the, the possibility, and, and, I, and I base this on um, Star Trek episodes that I have, not just Star Trek, but um, other, other shows, you know, other, other science fiction shows that show the more noble side of humanity, that when an older discoverer is you know realized oh this you know they, they succeeded there usually is some kind of triumphant acknowledgement about this is what our forefathers did or in in, in one story turns out the, the individual is still alive somehow and it's like, okay well we have to we have to get that we have to save that person now because they had the vision to want to go out and do something so eh, take that for what you will would you send your ship that far out. Uh, no. I think I pointed at Alpha Centauri. Yeah, Alpha Centauri is the first place. I mean, it's the closest star system we've got. Yeah, I pointed there. And that's the one thing I kept boggling over. Like, why are you sending it to, to Beetlejuice? Yeah. So, I, I, I don't know. But it, it, it is interesting that that was, you know, that was a snag up for my kid watching this film. He he caught it and picked it and was like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. You're like, you're, you're right, actually, it doesn't. And you do have to kind it of It doesn't walk make past, sense. You have to do kind of walk past this one. But, you know, that is, yeah. that is the way we're going to be sending people out. It would make, it would have made far more sense if they had sent out a bigger crew and more women. Oh, yeah, you want a generation ship. Yeah, or, you know, at least a small colony ship that says, well, you know, we'll just plant a, plant a small thing here and see what we can find on this world and and go from there but it, it kind of in fact there's that scene where uh uh taylor says to he's talking to nova but he's talking about how uh, uh what was uh, Stuart, the dead woman astronaut mm -hmm. was supposed to be the new eve with our mm -hmm. hot and heavy help or something to that effect i'm like okay any decent polygamist is gonna tell you you need more women need, need, need than more women. men. That's yep. your plan. That's the way it works. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like every three, you know, one man for every three women. Yeah, because the sad fact is, is that that's how it works. That's how it works. You know, if if you're trying to breed a colony, you you definitely want more women than you do men, uh, at least to start out. But um, but I'm is that really true? Is that what? Is that what was in mind, or is that Taylor just kind of projecting I'm what gonna was going to go happen? Ahead and say, I'm going to go ahead and say that's what was in mind, and which, again, um, I come back to the fact that in terms of the way this movie, you know, the story is executed, that it fails miserably on a number of spots, and that's one of them. Yeah, yeah. 
So talking about Nova, who is a character, incidentally, that I didn't even need to mention in the summary because, well, first off, she doesn't say much. Oh, wait. <coughs> Duh. Uh, second of all, she really has no part in this film. Um, she, is, she is there more to... She's there for Taylor to react she, on. Taylor to react on. And there is the scene, though, where he, he says, you know, when they separate them, because th- there is the... Uh, there's the scene where they put Nova in there in the first place, and all the apes are like, <laughs> they're all a bunch of dirty pervs in that, mm. you know, which I don't know. I've never lived on a farm. It wouldn't surprise me if that isn't exactly what, what farmers do when they decide to breed a couple animals. And, you know, it's like, well, Snowball, I got a present for you. <laughs> and then, you know, toss in a oh, female they pig do. or something. Yeah, they do. They do, trust me. I've seen it. So that that rang kind of true. And, and of course, it dehumanizes uh, Taylor more. But when they separate them, and he's, you know, they're across the cages from her, from each other, and he says, do you love me? Can you? Can you love? And that is a fascinatingly unanswered question in this film. What the heck are the humans? How do they get to that point? How how, how intelligent are they? you know can you can a, a, can a can a dog love a person is that really what that is 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 love a thing that's in the mind you know, yeah uh as much as i love to you know and you know as as humans who have pets we always like to uh anthropomorphize their you know feelings that they might be having but uh looking at this purely from strictly an uh an analytical point of view uh whether it's a wild pack of dogs or feral cats or you know birds whatever it doesn't matter i think it's just simply a biological drive to to reproduce it's i do not believe that there's that i do not believe there's any emotion in there now uh animals do appear to suffer uh to do appear to experience some base emotions you know especially like fear they do experience well, they, that there is bonding there's there's no doubt i mean wolf packs dog packs dogs bond right but we and but humans interpreted it as love my dog loves me I, I kind yeah. sort of maybe i mean it's but it, i'm it's not going to shut the door on that but yeah it I mean, obviously, they they genuinely like being around you. They they generally can be faithful and and you know form a very close. But you know, his question is very salient. It's like it's interesting that Taylor can't tell. He's around these humans, and he can't tell if they're animals or human. Yeah, mm-hmm. from their behavior. <clears throat> and again, there's one of those ones that falls down. Uh, in the hard sci-fi, it's like really, I, I what what could have done this to the humans that they would be mute? But according to Zira, they have all the necessary gear to speak. Yeah, based and of on course, that. you know, I well, yeah, yeah. You see, you can't look at the next film. No, I can't look at the next film. <laughs> can't. I'm stuck on this one. So yeah, what happened? What and and we never get an answer. We don't know anything about why human humans are like that. Although there may be some passing reference uh, or, or um, insinuation from, like possibly Zeus, you know, or, or even Cornelius. Oh no, humans have all you know. Man has always been like that. Mm-hmm. 
you know, but I, I don't think it's an outright scientific explanation. I think it's more of a, uh, just, just sort of a, a passing sentence or a passing thought. Yeah. <clears throat> There's also a line that Taylor has when he's talking to Nova about, you know, uh, monogamy's easy on this world. <clears throat> but he goes into that little speech about, oh, there have been women. There's been love making, but not love, mm-hmm. which is, a, a, you know, a very... 1960s film way of divorcing sex and love from right. from from emotion from biological uh, rutting, um, and he is implying that there's no love there in his life in his world. That you know it was about it was about the sex, and yet here I think he's he's he is attached and and so in a way sort of in love with Nova. He he needs her. He's he has formed a, a bond of some need. kind of a bond with her. Right this from, is right a man who does not need human beings, right? And yet he saw something in her the very first time he laid eyes on her before they even got captured. Yeah, she was cleaner than the others. <laughs> no, duh. <laughs> but yeah, <clears throat> yeah, it, it's um, uh, and I think you know we we get a little glimpse of because again throughout this film Taylor is for the most part a man who clearly has not much use for the human race. And yet when he's sitting there in the cockpit of the ship looking out at the thing, looking at space like this, things become different. It crushes the ego. I feel lonely. Yeah. Lonely. And and I think it's... Yeah, lonely. That's right. That's the word he uses. And knowing where the film was going when I watched it this time, and I thought, yeah, all right. That's kind of... Here's the man who doesn't need humanity, and yet... He's surprised because he's lonely. He's he's he is not um, he's not the person he thinks he is in some ways. Um, the humans do sort of wear clothes, but I'm gonna I'm gonna write that off as being that was the studio 1960s. Uh, you know, yeah, because I think there it was the original desire was for them to all be naked, but the studio just said no way can't. Yeah, can't do that. Can't do it. Um, yeah. So let's see. I'm uh, going through here. So that's pretty much all I have on Nova and the humans. Um, the apes, we have a we have a case system, uh, but we don't ever learn much about it other than it's it exists. Which I think they always they always mention it as a case system. Everybody calls it that. It's racism. Surely it's nothing more than racism, isn't it? An orangutan <sighs> to a chimpanzee to a I'm gorilla. Having- I'm having a hard time with this one um, because the ugh, man, I, I can't. Oh, it, it seems to be in. Uh, there is a mention of it. Um, it's is. Oh shoot! It's the the doctor who's working with Zay Galen. Uh, with, yeah, uh, Galen. is it Doctor Galen? Yeah, it's Galen. Yeah. yeah, Galen's making a big complaint. You know, the, 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 about the orangutans always getting whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. So there is some indication of that and, and they make and, that line about doing away with the quotas yeah yeah that we did hear that so hey they've got um uh, equal opportunity affirmative <laughs> action programs they have affirmative action among apes wow imagine that um but when i was watching this i marveled at how i didn't really sense it I mean, yes, they kind of hung together. And I was as I was reading trivia on this movie. Mm-hmm. I did read that during film breaks, this is really interesting, how 
all the people who played gorillas tend to group together. All the people who played orangutans tended to group together. Chimpanzees, etc. Yeah, you know, everybody kind of grouped together based on what you know what uh, subspecies of ape they were playing. Human interesting nature. little like yeah, interesting idea there. But when I watch this, especially when you know, like there's there's some scenes where you do see like uh, an, a gorilla walking alongside an orangutan and they're in conversation and it didn't feel like one was talking down to the other necessarily. I'm gonna say yes. That generally. I will generally agree with that statement. There are clearly lines in this program that are meant to imply that, and it doesn't quite come off in in the words and the way that people behave, with the exception of that scene where Galen... Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of scenes where the gorilla's talking with Zaius, and you could, you could make a case that says that is a superior talking to an inferior... But yeah, he's but the it, minister of science, so he right. is talking he's, to he's an inferior. He's got a position. He, he has a political position. So that's one thing. But I did not... Nope. At no time did I really see any outward behavior of one species of ape talking down or lording themselves over another. Would, would it have made a difference if they had been allowed to wear different clothing? Because... The chimps had the... one type of clothing. Gorillas had one type. Orangutans had one type. So we don't. We can't tell if we're looking at this story. We can't tell if orange suits are the ruling class or orange suits are what complement an orangutan's fur best, right? Is it a is it a style choice? Is it a is it a you know? Oh, you're the ruling class. Oh, you're in this tunic. You're a soldier. Right? We don't see right. anybody crossed over in any way, shape, or form. If we had seen one chimpanzee in an orange outfit, then then we could have made some we could have made some inference that says, no, orangutan you know, orange is the ruling class, and virtually all of them are orangutans. Ergo, orangutans have an advantage in that area. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like you see that one woman who's a CEO. So you then you can see how badly out of kilter the numbers are. But because they're all just orange orangutans, it doesn't. That's, that's probably my biggest complaint about the costume design is the fact that that seems very unimaginative. That they just made everybody's yeah. clothes exactly alike for each species. Yeah, I I felt that way too. Even though this is not exactly the most uh, advanced species, I I know that when uh, well, I believe this is in a Pierre's book that their technology is you know like equivalent to fifties and sixties. Yes, and that uh, only because of budgetary concerns, the studio opted for it to be much more primitive than that. But even then, uh, the the costumes felt way too generalized i didn't see anything specific in granted it's easier it's cheaper yep to just create okay here's this design here's this design here's this design let's mass reproduce yeah yeah it's much easier to do that it's more cost effective than to actually try and create something unique for each individual ape be it gorilla champ orangutan doesn't matter so you know, we might be seeing something again. We might be seeing something that is a result of a production value, and, and, and instead of being a um, a story element. 
Yeah. Uh, I have read, it's been many, many, many yarns. Um, I've read Pierre uh, Boulle, 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 I'm not sure which it is. I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh, um, original book. I haven't ever read it. It is, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's absolutely set. They're wearing suits with ties. They're driving around in military jeeps and yeah. automobiles. There are cities. There's a visit. Uh, probably the most distinctive thing I remember is their visit to the stock exchange. Oh, man. And instead How surreal of, would that be? Well, you know, the part that stands out to me is that you know how the stock exchange here is like a or at least used to be, is a big floor with everybody hanging around on the bottom and waving tickets and shouting right. and stuff, right? This one had overhead, basically, uh, monkey bars. So people are like would leap up and grab those so that they could get to the other side of the floor and, and swing across. This is, this, is the, this is the image. But yeah, I'm seeing all these guys in 50 suits with the cigars and ties waving stuff. And then others would leap up and swing across to get to the other side of the thing. This is the, uh, the image that I remember. I remember the book is not as good as the movie. Um, it, well, it has Pierre felt it was his... I did read that Pierre felt that it was... Of all the things he ever wrote, it was his worst book. And I haven't read any of his other work. But um, it... it it was, you know, I read it and I thought, okay, well, I can. It's shocking how far different this is than the movie. Um, and I felt, spoilers also for the book, I felt that the ending wasn't as. Well, I don't know. I read somewhere that the ending is, is the same, that, that the astronaut in the end learns that he was on Earth all along. But that's not what I got out of the ending of the book. Um, mm. The ending of the book, he gets back on his spaceship and he escapes yeah. the planet. He does of the escape, Apes, and yes. he returns to Earth. So much like the uh, uh, Tim Burton yeah. remake, he arrives back at Earth and lands at Cape Canaveral or wherever it is. And yeah. when he arrives, then the jeep pulls up with a general, and the general is a gorilla. And you're like, Earth's this way too. That's what my mind <laughs> put. Well, I, I could I be wrong, that, but yeah. Uh, I in in the notes that I had read that it didn't go so far as to say what the astronaut discovered when he arrived back at his home, you know, at his point of origin, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, but what I did read is that there was yet one little final epilogue where some apes found some documents or some records of this incident with the astronauts. And then find looking at each other and saying, "No, humanity's too stupid. They would have never done this." I, I, I don't remember. I don't remember. I, I what I, you know how the the human memory is terrible anyway. So, but but I mean, mm. what I remember is that he gets out of the he gets out of the spaceship. Yay, I'm home. The the jeeps pull up. The military come up. The sun is behind them, so he can't see them. And when the when the general steps in front of the sun, he's a gorilla. And then that's the end of the film or the book. It's just like boom. So you, you get this just a complete empty opening, but uh, or ending, but um, I, I I don't know. And and the original Rod Serling script, I'm not going to say it was closer to the book because I don't know, but the original Rod Serling script was set with basically modern times, mm-hmm. uh, which oddly enough, one of the reasons they nixed that was because of the budget. Yeah, 
Why would that be so much more expensive if that's they could go what down, I wanted to know? Why they could go down to Mayberry RFDs, you know, standing sets and well, they said they, they filled this at the 24th, 20th, 20th century uh, studios. Yeah, and don't they have a back lot? Well, this was shot on the back lot. The I can't remember the name of the ranch now, but now it's State Park, Catalina. State well, Park. even Maybe. then, there was a time. I mean, but yeah, they had standing it's much more studios. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, it's more common now for one studio to borrow another studio's backlot. Uh, but even then, it could have been done. You know, maybe that was too cost prohibitive as well. You know, but to me, it seems like building these primitive type sets would actually cost more money than to actually, you know, fork out some money to say Universal and say, "Can we film here for a few days?" Yeah. So I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I, I would love to... I mean, who knows? Maybe it's modern, yet everything is just different enough that they would have had to build it from scratch. Perhaps that's what it was. I don't know. But that um, that is one of the things that we, we do know about the script is that the, the rewrites were partially driven or largely driven by budgetary concerns. Exactly. Yep. Um, the apes have faith, obviously, because this is a tale of religion in its way versus science um but do we actually get anything about their faith that i don't know all we ever hear is the lawgiver well yeah we hear about the lawgiver who brought down the word uh there's like moses well they well they exercise that very same thing you know there's a line in star trek the motion picture that is said by decker we all create god in our own image and we see that happen in this film the the uh apes believe that the creator is an ape-like spirit and made ape in his own image. But is 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 the lawgiver the manifestation of God, or is the lawgiver the manifestation of the bearer of the words of God? Uh, the bearer is is my my you know like like a prophet. Okay. You know, or like you know Muhammad, Moses, however you want to you know, but the, you know a messenger. Okay, so the, we don't we the, don't get the a lot. messenger. The messenger, yeah, we don't get a whole lot about what's behind the lawgiver. We just get that the lawgiver tells a lot of stuff and wrote up a bunch of scrolls. Um, there, there's you know I think a brief mention of heaven and uh, and I can't remember whether the, there was anything about creating. Yeah, the lawgiver. Hmm, I don't remember about the creation bit of it in in this, but I just thought it was it. It's not very well formed out. Now, I'm not going to put on get the ape religion, it. but it's it is it's just enough that you can kind of get the whole. This is this is. Uh, let's face it; it's 1968, and it's the United States. This is a commentary about uh, Christian fundamentalism. We're not that right. far from the Scopes trials, right? In, they didn't exactly the yeah. Scopes trials. Oh my God! <laughs> well, wow, that's trial. irony yeah. for you. <laughs> I almost called it a monkey trial. In, uh-huh. in, the, in the recap, I, but I thought, yeah, that might be that might be one gag too far. <laughs> yeah, but but I think they simply wanted to just give us enough, as you said, you know, just give just enough there without having to you know spend all the time to flesh it out, create an enormous backstory. They just wanted to give a, enough of a of a framework so that the viewer then had um, a point of reference. I kind of that's think that's why the, the rest of the films fail. Well, fail is the wrong word. I enjoy the rest of the Planet of the Apes fi- films. Get me wrong, or at least to the original series. But they they start to they fail the story of this film because they start making up a whole bunch of backstory. And and 
changing some of the concepts that, you know, in, in later ones, we're kind of supposed to get that apes are better than man. But I don't think yeah. we're supposed to get that in this film. I think we're supposed to get in this film that apes are just exactly as bad as man, but that they look down on man. And as long as they have the other to act as the boogeyman, as as we do ourselves, oh yes, then they are unified. And then you know what will happen after that? I don't know. But do you think there are other apes beyond Ape City? Hmm. I'm, you know, we. That's a great question. Again, if I am simply isolating myself to this film, mm-hmm. I, I, I would have to. My, my initial thought would be yes. There's got to be others. Do there have to? Are there, are there humans in Australia right now? Yeah. I mean, there, there are. They are. You know, they are uh, basically somewhere about. Well, you know, they're not even as far as Ohio, probably. You know, they are west of the East Coast a bit, inland. Maybe, well, I read maybe only that, Pennsylvania. Who knows? Well, what I, 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 what I read is based on uh, the trajectory that Taylor is making and looking at the map that Cornelius and Zero showed him. He landed somewhere in Jersey. Okay, that's, that's possible. And I love how the fact that because of uh, 200 years following a nuclear holocaust, it looks like Monument Valley. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's uh, uh, Glen Canyon, Glen Canyon. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean Lake Powell, Lake Powell, Glen. Yeah, all that area. The um, well, I mean, it's obviously it's New York, and they do say the Eastern Desert. So, and they show the map. Ape City is west of New York, basically northwest of New York, from what they kind of show. So that, and it's you know what, three days ride by horse, two three days. Three days. days on foot. And it can't be many days. I don't know how far you can travel. Let's just pretend we're talking five days on a horse. Tr- walking. How far can you go? You can't be going very far. Which means of this world, we see 100 square miles, 200 square miles. Mm. Not much. Not much. What else is out there? There's, there's all of the Midwest. The Rockies. Yeah. The West Coast. There's Canada, there's Mexico, South America. Was all of it destroyed in this atomic war? It, How you know. We don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot that they just don't tell us. And is it is it only here that apes popped up and, and managed to form a, a civilization? Or is this a, a, a thing that happens elsewhere? I mean, obviously, it, it helps, keeps the story small and claustrophobic, and you don't really think about it. But uh, if you're not thinking about it as being Earth... It works when you think yeah. about it as Earth. Then suddenly it, you're like, "Well, that's they like got a real alien. Yeah. Really, it's been it's only been two thousand years, and if the apes haven't taken over everywhere, and there's a lot of humans alive, there must be humans alive elsewhere. And are they mute, or you know, and and if so, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, is, is that a result of the war? I I, I don't know. I, it just. It, as you say, when you get into the hard science fiction of it, it, it fails. But, you know, it's not meant to be. Just like when you go no, to Star Trek it, yeah. and they land on a planet where, you know, the people are, uh, can't you tell, Captain, I'm black on the left side. Left. It doesn't make any sense. But it makes sense in the context of, you know, the the moral that they're trying to tell you. Right. So. Don't look at it from a literal standpoint. Look at it as an allegory. 
or some sort of a metaphor. You know, you look at the subtext. That's that's the whole purpose of this of this movie. Looking at it from just the pure surface uh, of it and to analyze it at that point, no, it doesn't stand up. You know, you, you just have to kind of use a lot of plutonium, you know, and lots of hand waving. But it's it's fun to get beneath the surface and to see what kind of messages are being told. That's where this movie really wins out. Yeah. So looking at the production, um, we just mentioned the the locations, uh, Lake Powell, Glen Canyon in Arizona, um, or the southern part of Utah, depending on where they I think they were shooting mostly in Arizona, um, for the Forbidden Zone, which, you know, even, even now, it's amazing. I mean, it looks so it looks alien really and dead. And and for listeners to know, that's where we live. No. <laughs> just a, just just like five or six hours away from us. Yeah, it's like uh, we don't have any cool looking ground here. We just have the dead. But like, but you know, yeah. But we're not that far from those interesting rocky formations up there. Yeah, you know? we're close. Yeah. That that that's an amazing. And I guess you know, back then, it's kind of like it's kind of like that James Bond film, uh, Man with a Golden Gun, where they go out to. Uh, I think it's shot in Thailand, in Phuket, yeah. I believe. Uh, you know, all those cool rocks rising up out of the sea. When they shot that film, it was the middle of nowhere. No infrastructure, no modern conveniences. You know, it was a big deal to get a film crew out there to shoot that stuff. Now it is touristy beyond belief. All the mod cons, everything. I think Glen Canyon was like that when they shot this film. It was it was really tough for them to get that crew and stage it out there. In fact, even uh, elsewhere in Malibu, they had to be airlifted in on that beach, even though that's freaking Malibu, <laughs> California. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had they had logistical issues with shooting this uh, this show. Another thing about the production that is very very unique is the score. Oh, Jerry Goldsmith, a man who was way ahead of his time. And more, and again, as I was reading some of the notes on this, I mean, there are there, there are some really interesting uh, percussive sounds that are made. The guy used salad bowls. Yeah, I can. Believe I mean, that. the man was just such a genius at creating something that was not of this world. Uh, very percussive, mm-hmm. which kind of takes you back to almost a state of primitivism, if you will. Yep. I mean, it's it's just so well done. I mean, I think this score is just insanely genius, and there, there's like nothing melodic about it. Not much, not much. I I, I have this soundtrack. Uh, I I love a good soundtrack, and I own this one. It's not one I really like listening to, though. No, this is not meant for this is listening not a, pleasure. No. no. No, this 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 is not like you know John Williams and Star Wars that you can just or put Jerry on. Goldsmith and Star Trek the Motion Picture. Oh my God, yes, who <laughs> clearly could show that he can write some really amazing orchestral music. Uh, you know, no, this is this is uh, this music is integral to the film. It needs to be heard with the movie. It 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 makes it alien. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a good way to describe it. It, it. it makes it alien. It just doesn't... It, it, but it is music. Don't get oh, me yes. wrong. Uh, you know, um, Forbidden Planet, 
Oh yeah, same thing. Elect- electronic tonalities electronic by Sonata. I'm not as convinced that's a successful. Uh, it's weird, but it's electronic sounds. I don't necessarily get that it's music. This one is music, even though it's just really bizarre alien yeah. sounding music. Yeah, yeah. I you know that's that's a very subjective question. I I, I agree. Point of view. Um, some, I know some people who would actually swear up and down that what Forbidden Planet did is music and others would say no. I am not educated enough to make a judgment on that, except to say that it was way ahead of its time. Way ahead of its time. Uh, but yes, what Jerry did here, clearly there is a sense of tonality to it. It may be just really weird, but there is some kind of musical modality that exists in this. Well, I delay the point. Whether or not we consider Forbidden Planet a score, I think that the producers of that film had in mind because they don't credit it as a score. They list no, they it don't. as electronic tonalities. Although, <laughs> to like, be well, fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. later on, Morbius plays some of that same stuff and he says that was music that was composed by Krell musicians. Yeah, it's true. That's true. He does say that. Um... Let's see. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to pick. I, I, I don't want to pick in this because I enjoy the film. But, you know, we could get into that whole, if he thinks he's in Orion and that's 320 light years away and they've been gone for what they think is 18 months traveling at near light speed, I'm pretty sure you can't get 320 light years from Earth. Would that be a safe, safe bet? Wouldn't the most you could be able to get away would be 18 light months? Physicists, work with me. I know time, relativity do weird things there, but if if I am traveling... It did seem like a rather big number. (laughs) If I'm traveling at the speed of light or virtually the speed speed of of light... light. Near speed of light. Near speed of light. And I travel for one year from a physical standpoint, I can only get one light year, right? Or... Near the only, the one light year. We're, we're not talking uh, space dilation. Else, right. It, it's not space dilation. It is time, time dilation. dilation. Right. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, again, we're we're thing. I also like the uh, another part of the production design I like are the scarecrows, which don't play a whole heck of a lot in this. They're just humanoid enough that when you look at them, you think, oh, that's, I can, I kind of get scarecrows out of it. When, when Taylor goes, Scarecrows? It's like, yeah, it's close enough that you'd think that. What are they there for? Are those... No idea. I mean, are the apes trying to keep the humans out? Surely the humans don't live in the Forbidden Zone. No. <clears throat> or are they are they warnings that the apes shouldn't go any further because it is the Forbidden Zone? In which case, then they aren't Scarecrows. But that's a weird. That, that, that'd be <clears throat> a weird marking, if that's the case. You know, it's such a it's such a iconic image from this film that you don't give it any thought. But it's like, what what are they actually there for? They clearly don't work on the humans. And I thought you put scarecrows like in the fields. <laughs> yeah, not on <laughs> top you, of the mountains. Not on top of the mountains nearby, kind of thing. So, um, I love the fact that when Taylor and, and to some degree the others. Uh, but obviously Taylor gets a lot more screen time, is being chased by apes, whether it's in the fields, whether it's in the ape city, 
or even when he's fighting with the other human in the cage, that his intelligence shows. You know, he leads the apes to a place where their net won't work. He yeah. he does he does intelligent things, and to the credit of the people making the film, the apes don't treat him that way. They treat him like he's an animal. Just another mindless animal like the rest of them. And so he's much more... Even when he's fighting the guy in the cage, the guy in the cage is doing ape man fighting, and Taylor is using physical training and fighting style on him to to uh, overcome, even though it doesn't perfectly work. Um, I like that. I like that about the way that they do this with a character that that Taylor does not lose his humanity even when he's been you know dehumanized quite a bit in the course of what they're doing to him. Um, there is the scene where he finds Dodge in the museum stuffed. Oh God, that that always freaks me out. Here's a question: considering how many human beings that they killed and the likelihood. You know, how long Taylor's been there. It seems odd that Dodge would end up in a museum that quickly. So let's say there's a reason for it. Is it because he is the only black human on that planet? Well, he was dead. He was dead, but they they had tons of people. They were hanging on, you know, they were hanging on the the truss there. And they were taking pictures of black. It's possible because he is black. Because I don't remember seeing any black uh, primitive man. No, they're all white. They're all dark-haired and white. So Taylor is about the only light-haired guy. So that does make him an anomaly. Does make him a weird one. He's a, he's a mutant, a deviant. Um, let's see. But it is a it is a great scene, especially the fact that they've got his eyes oh, replaced man, I with. I freak every time I watch that. And the um, the fact that Dodge is killed quickly and that Landon is separated fairly quickly, I think is is. Again, testament to the script. It and the fact that they they are literally disposing of them as the film goes along. It adds to the jeopardy. It adds to Taylor's isolation. I mean, each time one of them gets killed, he has just a little left less of what made him the man that got to this planet. Mm-hmm. Right? The clothes, everything. They are the ship sinking. They are they are just taking away piece by piece of what makes him a modern man along the course of this film. And right. <clears throat> it it just it's it's really um it's really good filmmaking on that on their part. Mm-hmm. And then I guess should we should we mention take your stinking paws off paws. me you damn dirty ape. Dirty ape. Uh number 66 I think it ranked as you know top 100 movie lines. It's it's an iconic moment. It it is iconic. Is it is that line more higher up on the list than you finally did it you whatever the exact line is you bastards you finally blew up the planet at the end i think well this yeah uh i I think (laughs) this one rates a little higher only because of it's 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 like taylor's moment it is here he is here he has been trying to communicate with the apes all they've done is say oh he's just imitating he's just imitating this isn't real you know so they they were dismissing him this entire time. Granted, uh, I think Taylor's attempts to communicate were pathetic. They were. Be that as it may, uh, at least now he has that one moment where he can finally, he basically, this, he's basically saying F you. Yep. 
This is his big fu moment to those gorillas and all the apes that are circling him, thinking to be thinking him to be some mindless beast. By finally being able to you know speak, and uh, you know, of course, you know, Zira nearly had a apegasm when she saw that. Yeah, you have to wonder: Did that put what 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 does Zeus and the Ministry have to do to put that genie back in the bottle for all those thirty apes? That they can't. Him. I mean, they, they try. Well, they could kill him. <laughs> oh well, they could. Um, they try. I mean, by they they really work really hard at trying to rationalize the fact that he's still not an intelligent thinking being, and they fail miserably at it. At least for us, the audience, they fail miserably at it. But what they're going to release to the public after the hearing. Which goes really hand in hand with the whole hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, they are sticking their heads in the ground because they love being ignorant. Yeah. But it is it is a fantastic look. It's a great moment. In fact, I remember uh, when I... It, it's so interesting. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to jump streams here, but not in terms of uh, story ideas, but in terms of fan reaction. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you remember in the 70s, uh, there was this phenomenon called Go Ape in theaters where they would run uh, at least three Planet of the Ape films. If you were lucky, you would get all five of them. It, it, was, it was just a really big ape festival. You know, the uh, Planet of the Apes festival, they usually did those around holidays. And we would get the, you know, the Go Ape movies coming to uh, my, my town of Livermore a lot when I was growing up. Uh, never made it to the first one. I remember the first one had uh, Escape, Conquest, and then Battle. But I did get to go to the second one, which had Planet, Escape, and Conquest. And it was a really interesting thing, especially between Planet and Escape, how uh, public opinion really changes uh, you know, when Taylor finally gets his moment uh, and it says what he what it is that he needs to say. You know, the audience just cheers like mad in the theater and when it came to escape and then you know now clearly the movie's showing you know humans yeah we're, we're just as sucky as dr zayas felt we were you know and cornelius takes a couple of them out with a gun and the audience cheered yeah yeah D- despite the fact that man is not portrayed well in this film <laughs> it, 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 nonetheless the apes are not portrayed very well either no, not, no I'm not, not in Planet. They're, <clears throat> they're just, not portrayed well. They're just humans. They're they just are humans, in... humans with just, you know, ape masks on them. Yeah. So, so if that is the 66th greatest line in movie history, for me, I think I cannot think of a better movie ending than it's the ending of, the best of this film. Movie, it, it, I think, arguably, it could be said that is the, the archetype for... Movie cliffhangers, could, of sorts could be. I'm not uh, even sure if I'll call that a cliffhanger. No, it's but it's, it's certainly it's the, a twist. The end night Shyamalama Ding it's the, Dong it's, ending. It's, it's, yeah, yeah th- this is where Shyamalama Ding Dong got his idea for you know that twist that you throw right you could, in the end. I mean, this is like could say it's th- the Twilight Zone ending though. Yeah, it is the Twilight Zone <laughs> ending. It is a Twilight Zone ending. But for but for a big theatrical release, I think this is the one that started it all. It's it it is so. It's so effective. The only the only thing that I quibble about is when we see the backside of the Statue of Liberty and Taylor is still riding his horse up to it. He gets really, really close to it 
before Duh. he decides to recognize that as what it is. He's and walking it, right by the torch. Yeah. And, and so, he's not seeing it. Yeah. So, I mean, apart from... Yeah, there's some perhaps perspective Perhaps the issues. staging of this shot. But, it, you know, it's beautiful when they the, the, the torch being held up in front of the camera as they approach. We can't tell what it is. You can just tell that it's some sort of ruined construct. It's so well structured that, you know, we now know Taylor is seeing something important. Mm-hmm. But you can't tell what it is. And then you spin around and you see the half-buried Statue of Liberty. And... Uh, and, and, you know, his destiny strikes him on the head full force and he gets down and starts cursing the human race for, for what they are. It, it just, it, not only is that the perfect ending to this film, it's even better by the fact that they don't play any music. No, it's just silent. the eternal I mean, just, just, crashing just the, of the sea on yeah, the shore. Yeah, it's just the ambient sound. Mm-hmm. You know that that which breaks down and 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 lives eternal on this planet when man is before man was here and before after man is gone is the sea and uh, it, it's you know it you know wouldn't have worked perhaps in modern films where the credits have to be twenty two minutes long with a post credit sequence leading you up to the next film but uh, but for the short end credits that there are just the fact that it's just the waves crashing is just it's, it's there's something very yeah. It's really raw. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I have anything else. I, I, I'll say if if listeners didn't get this, I really like this film. <laughs> well, I do too. You know, but I think we agree. We like it because of all the Easter eggs that you can get out of it. Whether it be uh, story ideas, themes. I mean, this movie is just loaded with themes mm-hmm. that make it so rich. That's I, I you know and that it, as, and you were so right when you said this is Star Trek science fiction because it is where you can take an idea and then just wrap it in you know in in science fiction storytelling and then you know leave it out there for the viewer to unwrap and you know take the message for themselves and those those are just rich just rich with content. Well, in that case, I think that wraps up our coverage of Planet of the Apes. The classic film that if you haven't watched it, you should definitely watch it. But you should you have already to watched movie. to it before you listen to us talk about that the film. But anyway, uh, we are going to be back. I'm not going to tell you what films we're going to be looking at, but we're going to be back this year periodically from time to time with other films that we think are pretty darn awesome because we want to have fun. And uh, Ben, thank you for joining me for this My trip pleasure. to Planet of the Apes. Listeners. I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Cheers. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at FusionPatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.